Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. Today's episode was inspired by a lovely listener of Gathering Gold, Susan, who reached out to me on Instagram and mentioned that she would be interested in hearing an episode about the value of ordinary life. This is something that listeners of my other podcast, Perennials, have also reached out to me about, wanting to hear about the pleasures and challenges of ordinary life and trying to figure out how to approach concepts like passion and dreams and having a calling, all of which can be really confusing. Cheryl, you and I were talking before recording about these cultural messages we receive about how we should be striving for extraordinary lives through the channels of fame, wealth, and power, and these slogans of work hard, play hard, and live your best life. It can feel like a lot of pressure. So I'm very excited to talk about this with you today and to start off with some of your reflections. Mm. So when I think about the blessings or the goodness of an ordinary life, I think about my grandparents, um, who I've mentioned on this podcast, Charlotte and Izzy Brewstein. And I think about how they came to California from New York in 1940 with $300, and they spent the next several decades working hard. My grandfather went to trade school, then he built a sheet metal business with a partner. And my when my mother was in junior high, my grandmother went to work as a secretary. There was nothing glamorous about their life. They worked hard. They raised their daughter. They created a community of friends and family around them. They saved every penny they could. And when my grandpa was in his 50s, he sold his business and they used that money to start investing. And they never became millionaires or anything like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. They were always humble and simple in the way that they lived. They drove regular cars They went to garage sales every Saturday on their morning walks. It was one of their most favorite things to do. And when I lived with them that year after college that I mentioned in a previous episode, um, it became a ritual for me to join them on those garage sales. And they, they loved finding deals. They, they, um, they loved the simplicity of that. And they always donated to charities. They supported their daughter and their grandchildren whenever we needed help, whenever anybody needed help. They were there to help as they could. So they weren't wealthy like we think of wealth today, but they had enough to build their own home. Um, Literally, my grandpa built it with his own hands, and it was this very simple sort of Frank Lloyd Wright type of home. And... They grew this beautiful, simple life that extended out to anyone who came to their home. They had a huge organic garden with dozens of fruit trees, and that's how my grandpa would start every single day, going out into the garden, checking the new seedlings, the little lettuce seeds, harvesting what was ready to be harvested, checking in with all of his plants and trees, and also taking time to sit on the bench that they got at a garage sale and look out at the garden and just and just be, be with it. And my grandma tended to the roses and she cooked and she sewed and she crocheted and 
They loved learning. They often took classes for seniors at the community college. They walked every day. They went folk dancing twice a week. They took us on camping trips every summer, and they went on a three-week camping trip themselves every September, just the two of them. Um, and my grandpa was always tinkering in the garage. He was always making something. He took a stained glass making class, and for years, until his arthritis got too bad, he made beautiful pieces of stained glass. And we we have one of them. We have one of his lamps that he made. It now hangs in our family room. So I was thinking about what what were the things that made their life so sweet? And of course, I'm talking about their their later part of life, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It was, it was a significant part of their life. Of course, it wasn't fame or money. It wasn't power. Nobody outside of their circle of friends and family had ever heard of Charlotte and Izzy Brewstein. You know, they weren't famous novelists or playwrights or musicians or anything like that. But when I think of who has influenced me the most, the true meaning of the word influencer, they're right at the top of that list. And it was their ordinary life. It was their values, their lifestyle, their priorities. These are the things that I seek to embody and pass along to my children, their love of learning, their creativity, but not in any kind of big public way, their private creativity, their generosity, their kindness, their love of nature. So I was thinking about, you know, this word ordinary, you and I were, were texting back and forth about it and, and how it can be triggering because it connotes for some people boring, regular, nothing special, lukewarm, a dime a dozen. So I think it's important to differentiate between ordinary and boring. They're not the same thing. And then I think about poets like Mary Oliver, who turn the ordinary, the everydayness, into the extraordinary, right? And on some level, poetry is all about seeing the ordinary through a lens of awe and reverence, thereby transmuting it into something extraordinary. And so this poem kept coming to mind. It was a poem that I was first introduced to in high school. I'm sure you know it, Victoria. It's about, it's like the simplest poem, about the simplest appreciation of life. It's William Carlos Williams' poem. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. So simple. So every day. So much depends. Why does so much depend? Well, somebody had to slow down enough to notice the beauty, the simplicity of that moment, that vision, that scene of a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. 
So these last few days since this topic has been alive, I've thought so much about simplicity and ordinariness and the things that bring me most joy. Um, Like this time of year, nothing brings me more joy than picking raspberries, especially if my sons are there. It's the simplest thing and also the most miraculous. These incredibly delicious treats from nature that just grow. And there's always loads of bees around them. And the whole when you stop to think about it, when you stop to notice, and you have that lens of awe, it's the red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater. It's everywhere. The miracle that raspberries are growing right there in abundance and the color and the juiciness and the deliciousness of them and all of the elements, the millions of microbes in the soil, all of the elements that work together to grow these raspberries every year. And so then I was going further in to think about what is this to transmute the ordinary into the extraordinary, right? Writing, writing this, the vessel of awe into the miraculous. And that maybe us as humans are the same way. Maybe when we approach our daily inner world with reverence, these worlds and worlds and worlds that exist within us, just like the millions of microbes in the soil, right? These pathways, these just the miraculousness of our human body, but then our psyches, right? That may, that us as humans are the same way, that we, we approach our inner world with reverence. We find the extraordinariness of who we are, our uniqueness, and as I texted to you that day, maybe that's why people respond to our episodes on nighttime and end of summer and jealousy, these universal experiences that we're normalizing in a way. And almost paradoxically, it's the normalization that elevates them to the special. These things that happen every single day, these experiences that everyone has, how can they be special? But they are. They are when we shine light on them. They are when we care about them. They are when we elevate them, when we take the time to do an entire podcast on this one emotion or one experience. And so in a way, it's almost what our entire podcast is about. It's, it's, it's picking out the raspberries and appreciating them and loving them and having this sense of reverence and awe for the most regular, in a sense, of human experiences, but maybe also the extraordinariness of it is that we all share it. And so it it points to our oneness and our interconnectedness. 
And we can, we could go like into mind blowing territory of how is it that we all experience these same things, right? That so few people are talking about and giving this kind of time and attention to. When you were talking about picking raspberries and kind of the miracle of them, I could just see them so clearly and like taste them and feel them. Yeah. And it is extraordinary. And so what does this mean then to strive for an ordinary life, making the ordinariness extraordinary because of the reverence to the ordinary, right? We have to, we have to shift into the realm of paradox and here, because it doesn't quite make sense to our rational minds. How can an ordinary life be extraordinary? Because it's extraordinary because of the attention that we pay to it and the reverence that we have for it. And maybe the gratitude, you know, maybe gratitude is another lens, another mindset that elevates the ordinary into the extraordinary. And so it's almost an act of rebellion against the cultural narrative that we are brainwashed into believing from such an early age that says, you have to go big, the bigger, the better, fame and fortune and, and you know, that your number of followers these days, that these are the things that, that matter. These are the things that are going to make you feel extraordinary. We have to, we have to poke a lot of holes in that narrative because we know if we stop to think about it for two seconds, we know that that life does not actually equal an extraordinary life in the sense that that we're talking about extraordinary. We have to redefine extraordinary. We know that it doesn't create well-being. We know that it doesn't fill in whatever hole you're trying to fill in around worthiness, belonging. And yet when it's coming at you from every direction, it's hard not to fall into that fantasy and that belief system. Yeah. When I was thinking about this episode, one of the first things that came to my mind was something that happened when I was, I was probably about 10 years ago. I showed my boyfriend at the time, It's a Wonderful Life, the, the mm. movie yes. from 1946 with Jimmy Stewart. He plays a character from a small town who, as a kid and as a young man, he has these really big dreams of leaving the small town, going and exploring and traveling the world and becoming a rich, famous architect and building these giant, magnificent buildings. Hmm. And when the movie starts, he is married. He has four children, I think, and he's still living in his small town. He hasn't left. He didn't become an architect. He didn't travel the world and he feels like a failure. Hmm. At the heart of the movie is a message that no, they say no man, I will say no person is a failure hmm. who has friends. 
There's Mm -hmm. a lot in the movie about friendship and community and love and commitment and that and that actually a life that looks ordinary might not be so ordinary after all. But when I showed this movie to my boyfriend, he (laughs) hated it. And he said, this movie is 1940s American propaganda trying to make people complacent with mediocrity. (gasps) We we broke up. Not immediately (gasps) after that, (laughs) but we did break up. And okay, I I still love the movie and I I have learned that some people find it really depressing <laughs> that he doesn't travel the world and achieve mm. what he dreamt of achieving. Some people really mm. don't like the movie because of that. And I heard my ex-boyfriend's critique and mm-hmm. I thought about it and I think his critique kind of embodies this fear that a lot of us have about not fulfilling our potential and never fully achieving what we could achieve. And, you know, we do need people who have historically been shut out of like leadership and positions of power and certain jobs and positions in society to to be in those positions, right? Like we need people to dream and and mm-hmm. feel empowered and be imaginative and and strive for things and be ambitious. But there's something about like threading a needle, I guess, between an insatiable hunger for power and wealth and fame and Mm -hmm. all the things that you're naming as like, they're not going to actually make you feel like enough. Mm. And at the same time, honoring our dreams and goals and desire or just the things that we love or things that we want to try or practice or do. And I think that's where a lot of people's angst comes from. Hmm. It's so important what you are highlighting, Victoria. I think you are speaking right to the core of what so many people I think are struggling with, which is exactly that Threading the needle, like you said, between following your dreams, even knowing what your dreams are. um, That's huge. (laughs) That's always been something I've struggled with a ton. That's huge for people because people say, follow your bliss and follow your dreams. And a lot of people don't exactly know what that one dream is. So I think about someone like Everest, my, my oldest son who has this very clear dream and passion to fly. Um, And as he has gotten older, the dream has gotten bigger and clearer, which is he wants to be an astronaut and he wants to be on the mission to Mars. And it's this huge dream that I am convinced he came into this world with. We didn't do anything to... still that dream that is just his dream. So he has what we would call a calling. Most people don't have that from what I can gather. Most people don't have such a clear calling. That doesn't mean they don't have interests and passions when they're younger that may get squashed down for one reason or another. It doesn't mean they don't have things that they love. and But it's like maybe they could do six different things and be happy with any of those. Um, And so it's breaking down 
this myth of a calling that I think is important to, to puncture because um, it causes a lot of angst and pressure for people to say, but what is my calling? I don't know. And and just like I don't believe there is you know, one partner, I don't believe in the one. There's a myth of the one. There's also a myth of the calling. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that some people don't have that. And so in Everest's case, we will do everything we can to support his dream. But if along the way, circumstances arise that prevent his dream from happening, because we're talking, you know, a very small percentage of people that become astronauts. There are a lot of doors that could easily close along the way. Some external, some internal, who knows what this path is going to look like for him. We will do everything we can to support him, but if doors close, we would hope that he would have enough of a sense of self that he could redirect and he could pivot and that his whole sense of self and worthiness and excitement doesn't hinge on this one vision. And it reminds me of a couple of movies. It reminds me of the Pixar movie Soul, where the barber's talking about how he had this dream of being a veterinarian, I think it was, and and there, but there wasn't the money for it, or somebody got sick, or I don't remember exactly, but he had to pivot, and he became a barber. And he brought his whole self to this path of being a barber, cutting people's hair. And his whole, it's, it's, the way I often think about it with career anxiety is that we, you can bring your gifts to a variety of different palettes and, and paint yourself onto those palettes. It's not just one, it's not, or canvases, it's not just one canvas that is the recipient of your gifts and that's it. And if that canvas has a hole in it, or if that canvas is too small or whatever it is that, well, too bad, your life is over. No, it's an internal experience that we then bring and share with the world. So that was such a powerful scene in that film. And then I think of the film Family Man, which is kind of like the modern day, mm. it's a wonderful life. Same message, right? Very similar message as it's a wonderful life. And in the end, I think there's, I think in the end of that film, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I think there's, I don't want to say a way to have everything because <laughs> I don't think life is like that, but the movie is about celebrating the core values that I started the podcast with yeah. in terms of what is truly important. It's our relationships. It's taking care of others. It's extending ourselves for the good of others. It's being of service. It's kindness. And... When we are living out those values, we are living our best life. So this slogan of go live your best life that creates so much pressure, I think needs to be reworded or re-understood. Yeah. That it's like living your, your kindest life, right? Living a life that embodies your core values. What do you hold as precious yes 
And I don't think there's anything mediocre. In fact, I think that's quite a challenge to live a, a life that embodies kindness and giving and generosity and love and relationships, friendship, that that's the centerpiece of your life. And that doesn't mean, again, when I think about someone like Everest who has this big dream, it doesn't mean that um, he shouldn't follow the dream and just, you know, go find somebody wonderful to love and settle down and have a family. No. But the thing that we impart to him quite a bit and we and we always say yes follow you. we are 100% in support of your dream and relationships are the most important thing mm-hmm. yeah i was saying to you earlier that i think there's just so much fear behind and there's so many different types of fear i think when it comes to am i living up to my potential am i okay am i going to be okay and to me it's on these two levels it's like when you live in a society where there are people who have a lot and a lot of people who don't have enough even to have an ordinary life quote unquote Mm -hmm. like just where your basic needs are met and you can you know rest in that and then I think there's like that internal, am I okay? Am I mm-hmm. enough? And I think there's just this so much fear about like, is am I enough? Is this enough? And some of it is like rational and understandable, but then I think it just goes beyond somehow. I don't know if I'm articulating this very well. I'd be curious, Victoria, how this, if you'd be willing to share, how this lives in you. Is Mm. this something that you struggle with? A thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah. Can you flesh that out of what that looks like in your struggle? Yeah, I think, I think I definitely have that fear of like, am I doing enough to feel that I'm okay? On those two levels that like I'm going to be okay in terms of my security, like money and, you know, all of Mm -hmm. that. But then also just like, am I okay as a person? Am I doing enough to believe that I have value and Mm. that I matter and that I'm lovable? Yeah. And I think... Yeah, I just think there is a lot of that messaging that's kind of like a scarcity mindset of like, you gotta mm-hmm. get more, be more. Um, and a scarcity yes. mindset of like, if you don't get more and be more, someone else is going to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think I also connect with what you were saying about how you really have to slow down to be present enough for your day-to-day life to like appreciate what is extraordinary about a raspberry or about a walk through your neighborhood or about your partner or your friend. Yes. Yes. And I do definitely also see in myself more of a struggle to slow down and be present Mm. and more of my attention and time in scrolling through my phone Mm. and 
scrolling through Instagram and seeing everyone else's curated feed mm-hmm. <laughs> and highlighted stories <laughs> yes. of all the extraordinary things that they are thinking and creating and doing and being and looking like. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I relate to it on all of those different levels. Yes, it makes so much sense. Um, so a couple things stand out for me. One is that question of enough, which is so central to every kind of anxiety theme that comes through my door. Yes. Um, it can get projected onto a partner in terms of are you enough? Um, are you good looking enough? Are you successful enough? Are you witty enough? Are you tall enough? Are you whatever enough? But really it's the inverse. Am I enough? It can be projected onto health anxiety. Um, am I doing everything right so that I can prevent something bad from happening? Am I doing enough? And so it's so linked also to the perfectionist that lives with this illusion that if I do everything perfectly, I can prevent something bad from happening. And if something goes wrong, it's my fault, right? So the perfectionist, the shame, that deep place of shame, am I enough just as I am? So if I do more and I make more money and I live bigger in a bigger house, will that make me feel more worthy? Well, we know that it doesn't. We know that rationally. But the shame voice isn't necessarily convinced because that's not the message in the culture. That's not what we see on social media for the most part. We see people living bigger, better, more beautiful lives, better in quotation marks. And so it's reverse engineering that motion. It's like, okay, let me, let me reel that back in all of those projections that say, I have to do more, make more, be more in order to be worthy. And really asking what is enough. And this constant barrage of I'm not doing enough. And then you know, it, it, it ties back into what I started with in terms of the simplicity of, of a good life, um, a life filled with goodness. And of course, some, some people have a life filled with goodness, but they don't feel, they can't take it in. They can't take in yeah. the goodness that surrounds them. How difficult it is these days to slow down enough, to be present enough in a moment to take in the simple goodness that everybody has access to. Like one of my most favorite moments in every day this time of year is the moment I step barefoot onto the grass in the morning. And just feeling the sponginess, the aliveness, the life force that's beneath my feet and then turning up my face to the sun and 
if I can pause long enough to be in that miracle that we all exist because we are the exact distance from the sun. We are in that Goldilocks place. And if we were just a little bit close, if Earth was a tiny bit closer, we wouldn't be here. And if it was a tiny bit further away, we wouldn't be here. It's like mind-blowing. What? How is that possible? The simple miracle that water comes out of a faucet. And the gratitude of that, knowing that many people don't have access to clean water. How lucky we are. It's like so easy to take these things for granted. How lucky we are to get into a warm bed every single night. Not everybody has that. And they should, right? And that's a whole other conversation. They should. We should be talking at an equal playing field where everybody has access to the most, to the basic necessities for well-being. Clean water, a bed, healthcare, right? That should be where we start. So when we do have those things, you know, is that enough? When we have one or two good friends, is that enough? We don't need 12 friends. You know, when we have a, an imperfect partner, knowing that we ourselves are incredibly imperfect, is that enough? When we can see a tree, when we can be barefoot on the grass, when we can turn on a faucet and clean water comes out, when we can go to the grocery store and there's all this food that people worked to get there. You know, these moments when we can pause before we eat food to recognize all of the people and resources and insects and microbes and bees and sunshine and water that took to create this bowl of food sitting in my hands right now that's going to sustain me and nourish me. This is ordinary. This is ordinary, but... None of it really is. None of it. I feel like if we could just pull back the veil, like if aliens were to come and just pull and be like, you humans, you don't even understand. Like you are living on a miraculous planet all around you. And you think you're not enough? You think it's not enough? You are enough. You know, it, it makes me think about this great Instagram post, ironically, <laughs> mm-hmm. from Maria Bowler. She is a contemplative and an artist and spiritual director. And I had her on Perennials recently to talk about the Enneagram because she uses mm. the Enneagram a lot in her spiritual direction. And she... Her posts are so 
fantastic. Like she has a way mm. of in like three sentences just blowing my mind. Mm. And she talked about in a recent post the difference between fantasy and imagination and how we need more imagination and less mm. fantasy. Mm-hmm. And she said, here's what the difference could look like. The difference could look like fantasy is I'm going to go live on Mars. Imagination is how do I uh, how do I help create a world where everybody has enough food to eat and we don't have to evacuate to Mars? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. But I thought that was such a brilliant distinction between fantasy and imagination. And I think it kind of speaks to what we're talking about because I'm someone who gets like so easily entranced by fantasy and I always have been. And I'm going to tell you something really embarrassing. I might cut this out. (laughs) Okay. When you you talked about your favorite moment being like stepping onto the grass in the morning – when I was thinking about preparing for this episode as well, I remembered how when I was a kid and I was getting ready in the morning, I'd be brushing my teeth and like imagining that it was just the opening credits of the show of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, and I, even now, I don't, I don't fantasize about that anymore. Um, but sometimes... I feel so sad and even like a little bit ashamed that I don't feel that level of like awe and gratitude when I wake up and take a breath of fresh air or look at look outside. Like I want so badly to feel awe and gratitude and like peace and something really spiritual and connected. Mm. And I don't know if it's like my brain is addicted to the dopamine hit of like instant gratification. I don't know. I don't, like- I don't think so, Victoria. <laughs> I think it's what's coming to mind is something we talked about in an earlier episode. And this is why I think it's so wonderful that you and I are doing this together. I wouldn't have felt this way when I was 30. Mm. We're at different life stages. Mm. So you are in first half of life and I am moving into second half of life. And in first half of life, it's very much about building and externalizing and creating all those structures and vessels and building your financial portfolio and making sure there's enough and um, figuring out life path and career. And it's not that you're not, can't also be focused on growing gratitude and spiritual practices, but it's not what's going to lead you. It certainly did not lead me when I was 30 or 40. Mm. It wasn't my focus at all. It was on growing my career, on raising my children, on lots of things that were more outside of myself that separated me from, um, the simplest moments of being able to take in the goodness mm-hmm. of life. So I'm so glad you're bringing that in. That's nothing to feel shame about. That's exactly, um, that makes so much sense for your life stage. You just entered the decade of your 30s. 
Right. You are you are really at the beginning of growing your adult identity. You've done incredible work on it in your 20s. So it's not exactly the beginning, but you're not anywhere near midlife. So that makes so much sense to me. Richard Rohr comes to mind again, mm-hmm. right? A first and second half of life. And it's, you know, it's not always chronological, but I think often it is that our age determines what we're focusing on. Because I've noticed as I've gotten older, and even just in the last year, something has shifted in me where not only do I not long for bigger and more, like more followers, let's say, I actually actively don't want it. Mm. I don't want more. I don't want to be in the public eye. I don't want a million followers and the responsibility that that comes with and Mm. the attack and scrutiny that that comes with. And so I find myself really settling into a place of more and more enoughness. It's enough. I'm so grateful for what we have. And it's plenty. It's enough. And if it was less than this, that would also be okay. That would also be enough. So I I find whatever part in me there was of like the opening credit, I had that too. Of <laughs> <laughs> I think that's such a natural place to go in younger life of like, ooh, what would it be like to be? I mean, I wanted to be an actress at one point mm-hmm. in my life. And it wasn't because I loved acting so much. It was because I thought it would make me feel validated. Yeah. No. And I was lost. That was like when I graduated from college and I was living in that year with my grandparents and I had no idea what I was going to do. And I went and got, you know, headshots and I got an agent. And I mean, I look back at that 21-year-old self and I'm like, oh, sweetheart. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I'm also like, yeah, you just didn't know. Yeah. You know, you just didn't know. It's okay. You did find your way. You know, and it wasn't a straight line at all. You found your way. So I think that's so natural for younger stages of life. Um, and at this stage where I am... It's, it's a real pulling back from that. It feels, it just feels like what I'm longing for is, is, is actually more humility, more of a humble, just a humble, quiet, you know, honorable life where I continue to offer what I offer, but I'm not, not hoping for any big bestseller, you know, I'm not hoping, I'm not even hoping. I don't want that. I just want to do my work in the world and have it land wherever it lands. And to be honest with you, Victoria, part of that I think has come about from doing this podcast mm-hmm. with you. The the simplicity of it, the ordinariness of it, you know, we're not like 
exposing some big journalistic, (laughs) 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 like I started with, we're talking about such ordinary human experiences. And it's brought me back in a way to some other part of myself in my 20s, which was connected to simplicity. Mm -hmm. My other dream was, I just want to be a poet. That's all. I just want to be a poet. I just want to sit and write poetry all day or maybe just one poem a day. And could that be enough? It's so interesting, too, because I think a lot of people would see you as pretty extraordinary, you know, and I because I also think it's like in the eye of the beholder, if that makes Mm. sense. Like Mm -hmm. when you really admire someone and they've been so meaningful to your life, it's like that person's extraordinary, you know? Yes, yes. And I wonder if, do you think that you're able to name any of the things that helped you move through that more fantasy-oriented stage of life? Because... I don't know that everyone gets through it just because they get older, right? Mm -hmm. But is there anything that you can name that helped you kind of like let go of some of that? Yes. I think it was a big piece was staying as connected to myself as I could. And my, as you know, and this is not everyone's way, but my way of doing that has primarily been through journaling. Mm. And so it's my, I don't know, I'm sure over a hundred journals, if not more, that have helped me come back to me. Mm. I think that was a big piece. Um, I think also going to graduate school in my early 20s um, and just following that interest. I didn't know for sure that I wanted to do this kind of work, but I knew that it was a strong interest for me. And so when I was 23, I I went back to school. I went to graduate school and I'm sure that pulled me out of the fantasy. I never went back to wanting to be a famous actress, right? Um, I stayed, I stayed pretty connected to that, to that path. But again, it wasn't a straight line. As I talked about, I think in other episodes, I, um, it was sort of all over the place, the path landing me where I am now. So I think having that vessel of graduate school and having that, that grounding and and particularly the Jungian philosophy of going to Pacifica and being steeped in, in that Jungian philosophy, which is all about the unconscious. It's all about the self with a big S and not in a self-centered way, but the self ultimately in service of society. But um, it's a very humble crowd, the Jungians. You know, you don't hear about famous Jungians. Um, you don't <laughs> see famous Jungians on Instagram. It just doesn't happen. There's hardly even any of them at all. They're a very private largely introverted crowd. And I think it um, encourages a much more humble 
approach where it really has nothing to do with fame, with largeness, anything like that. Um, so I think those two things were very helpful in terms of shattering that fantasy mind. Um, and then I think, you know, having children is, it's like the extraordinary within the ordinary every single day, right? And you don't really have a whole lot of time in those early years of raising kids to focus on creating a big life. It's really just about getting through the day, mm. you know, these very long days <clears throat> that are, you know, full of extraordinary moments, but also a lot of not fun moments. And, you know, it's, it's like the biggest love you can ever experience. And then the biggest exhaustion and the biggest frustration and like the biggest everything. But there's nothing glamorous, nothing glamorous about raising children. And yet, it's so deeply meaningful, so deeply fulfilling. Right? And so it, in, in a way, it really encapsulates like the, the extraordinary, the intersection of the extraordinary with the ordinary. Hmm. I'm curious just because you are talking about parenthood and I'm not a parent, but I hear parents and mothers in particular, even just people I follow online, talk about boredom <laughs> and mm. like how boring it can be. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think in general, like another fear when it comes to ordinary life is like fear of boredom. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you in terms of hear things that you hear yes. from people that you work with and if you have any thoughts on that fear of boredom because I definitely also have that and it's funny because I'm not a very exciting person but yet I am also <laughs> afraid of boredom yes it comes up a lot and it comes up in relationship anxiety again as the projection of I'm not in love enough yeah. and when we when we unpack that it's really the longing for that feeling of infatuation that can come in the beginning of a relationship sometimes not always that is so alive. So I think what people are longing for is a sense of aliveness. And it reminds me again of your ex-boyfriend's quote. We we don't want a life of mediocrity because we don't are we're not striving to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat potato chips for the rest of our lives. Right? We're striving for that internal sense of aliveness, which would be a whole other podcast of what helps create aliveness separate from anything external, separate from the job you do, separate from the relationship you're in. Your own aliveness is ultimately your own responsibility for the most part. And so much of that is connected to doing one's inner work, opening up those frozen emotional pathways, being willing to have a relationship with grief because when the grief shuts down, so does the joy and the excitement. So it's complex, making it sound very simple. It's complex. What creates that sense of aliveness, connecting to our creativity, right? Such a big source of aliveness, connecting to our bodies, our physical bodies, walking, 
dancing for five minutes, just being in our body, inhabiting our bodies. You know, so when I, when I talk about my grandparents and that later part of their lives, yeah, they did sit around and watch TV sometimes, of course. But there was also a an, an very active, engaged quality right, of walking every day, going folk dancing twice a week, traveling, taking classes at the community call, engaging the four realms of self, mm-hmm. physical body, their hearts in terms of their relationships, being in the garden, is their, their creativity, that was their spiritual path. For the most part, they were not religious or, or traditionally spiritual people, but that, that was their spiritual path. Their minds, they were reading all the time, all the time. They would go to the library, check out six books. They were constantly reading. They were constantly learning. There are so many ways to be alive. Some of which has to do with the work you're doing in the world because we do spend so many hours a day at work. And so we want that to be at least somewhat connected, if not very aligned with our values and our sense of purpose in the world. And I know that's sort of tricky territory, um, career stuff. And it gets into that realm of, you know, am I living my best life? But it is important, but it's not the whole picture, you know, and that's why I say like, you know, if doors close for Everest, that we hope he has enough of a sense of his own aliveness that he can, he can redirect and he'll feel joy and fulfillment in a different way. And I'm quite confident that he will, you know, that it's not just this one thing and this one path. So speaking of that idea of adapting and using your gifts, even if it doesn't look like what you had envisioned, I actually want to go back to It's a Wonderful Life because George Bailey doesn't become an architect of great skyscrapers, but he actually does design and build these nice, affordable homes for people in his community, working class people and immigrant families who have been renting from the wealthy, powerful, greedy, corrupt Mr. Potter. And now George Bailey gives them the opportunity to own their own homes. And what we see is that George has saved people's lives without even realizing it. And by the end of the movie, his community of very ordinary people, they save his life with their care, their commitment, their love, their respect, their showing up for each other. And they thwart Mr. Potter. I just think about with wanting to live an extraordinary life, there's, there is, I think, like you said, like wanting to feel alive. And I think even like just fear of death, you know, that, that knowing Mm. that there's only so much time and I want to see things and feel things and do things and matter and be significant and leave a legacy even maybe. Hmm. And I also think there's just like this deep desire to be seen. Hmm. I don't know. That's just landing Hmm. with me. It's like this deep desire to be seen. Hmm. Yes. 
I think you're absolutely right to bring that in as a strand in what fuels what fuels the desire for bigness, you know, for a big life, for the best life, to be seen, to be appreciated, to be valued, which is a very important need, extremely important need to be seen. But I think that that happens most in our closest relationships. Yeah. Not that we don't need to also feel valued for our work in the world. That is also extremely important. But that doesn't have to happen on any kind of big scale, right? If you're a therapist working with 10 clients, you have a sense of your value. You have a sense that you are making a difference in 10 people's lives, right? When I'm on Instagram and a post seems to resonate, it actually doesn't make me feel seen. I'm, I'm glad it speaks to somebody. I'm glad it might help put something into place in their life. But these are not people who know me. Mm. They know my work. They know my words. But in a way, Instagram world is a dime a dozen. Like there are lots of people saying lots of good things that get way more attention than my posts get. And that's great. That's wonderful that people have access to that. But I'm saying that to just say that's not, it's not a, it, the, the largeness. And I think it's a myth that's really important to shatter. It's not what makes you feel seen. We know this, again, from celebrities who struggle with worthiness, who struggle to feel like they're enough. It doesn't matter that they have 5 million fans. Because you can just feel like an imposter. If you don't know it in your own self. Right. It's just, it's a bottomless bucket. Yeah. Right. It's a bottomless bucket. You can have 5 million people tell you you're fantastic. And if you don't know that in your own being, I am worthy and I am enough, it doesn't matter. And when you do know it in your own being, it's like, oh, thanks. That's nice. But it's not, it's not, you don't live for it. It's just, oh, thank you. I'm glad I'm helping you in some way, hopefully. But I'm not here to get your validation. Right. I'm, I'm here to offer something. And where I feel seen is, where it matters to me is my husband, my friends. Those of us living ordinary lives, I think we know that if my sense of self-worth is low, then even just two friends telling me something validating doesn't mm. get through. Right. Doesn't land. That's right. That's right. The shame is a barrier. The shame prevents that validation and that seeing from entering. The shame is a wall. And so when the shame character is up and when it's loud, it doesn't matter what people say, even those closest to you, and then certainly people that you don't even know. Yeah. Does not matter one drop. 
I was flipping through the wisdom of anxiety (laughs) and I went to chapter two about the myth of normal Mm. and cultural expectations about happiness. Mm. And you start the chapter with a quote from Fred Rogers. Is it okay if I read the quote? Please. As human beings, our job in life is to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is, Mm. that each of us has something that no one else has or ever will have, something inside us that is unique to all time. It's our job to encourage each other to discover that uniqueness and to provide ways of developing its expression. And I was saying to you that it's kind of funny because I went to your chapter about the myth of normal, which seems like it should be the opposite of extraordinary, but Hmm. it seems like a lot of us have both anxiety about wanting to be normal and wanting to be extraordinary (laughs) at the same time. Yes. And that both of those things, both of those anxieties about not being normal in this particular way or not being extraordinary in this particular way not Mm. being just so Mm. blocks us Mm. from realizing what Fred Rogers talked about, how rare and valuable we are. Yes, and that it is our mission to find that in ourselves, but also to, to bring that out in others, to let people know, I see you. Mm. And in a way that can be done in any job you have. Right? Any job where you are coming into contact with people, right? you could be delivering UPS packages and you could be brightening every person's day that you come into contact mm-hmm. with just by your presence, that your presence is a gift. And that's what was extraordinary about Mr. Rogers. He was just this older man wearing sweaters, changing his... <laughs> into his sneakers, you know, (laughs) but he was extraordinarily present and kind. Yes. Yes. And what a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a gift you are, Cheryl. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Victoria. What a gift you are in my life and in, I'm sure, anybody's life who's lucky enough to know you. And I mean, truly, like truly, Mm. you are such a gift to me. Thank you. Hmm. Cheryl, if people want to find more of your work online, where should they go? You can find my website at conscious-transitions.com and I'm on Instagram at Wisdom of Anxiety. And you can find me over at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate it, leave a review, share with a friend. It helps other people to find the show. Thank you for listening.